Hello, friends. Actually, maybe we aren't even friends. So fans. Well, I don't even know if you're fans. Uh, hello, humans. Uh, welcome to another episode of The Good Journey Pod. I'm your host, Brady Josephson, where each week I get to chat with thought leaders, activators, innovators from this world of good. And today I have a very, very special treat for you uh, in a slightly different format, as I'm delighted to be joined by my first boss, uh, friend and all-around amazing man, Rich Johnson. Hi, Rich. Hey, Brady. How you doing? I'm good. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. Absolutely. It's my privilege. So for the audience's sake, Rich, you helped launch Spark Ventures, startup nonprofit doing development work in Zambia, and made the foolish decision of hiring me uh, out of grad school uh-huh. as the first full-time employee. Uh, thank you for that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, um, we, were, we were lucky to have you. Well, debatable. But recently, uh, you kind of spun off part of the work that Spark was doing with trips and donor experience into a new for-profit company called Ignite, uh, which is super cool. And so today, what what I hope we can do, Rich and listeners, uh, we're going to kind of go through this 10-year period of why start a nonprofit and what was it like in early days and growing it and then you know, the decision to spin it off into a for-profit and what does that look like? And we'll just kind of maybe chat through, you know, your journey here, Rich. Uh, and obviously, I'm uh, a little part of it. So I, I might pitch in my own thoughts and opinions. And hopefully this kind of process, and which is unique, uh, hopefully it'll kind of be a, a neat behind-the-scenes peek uh, for people who are interested in for-profits and nonprofits or just this social good space. Definitely. That sounds great. All right. Well, let's, um, let's get to it. Let's start with uh, Spark Ventures. Why in the heck did you start a nonprofit? <laughs> well, uh, you know, the short answer is I was inspired uh, by an experience that I had with two of my buddies when we were traveling to Africa um, back in 2006. Um, we ended up in Zambia, uh, spending some time with a grassroots organization called Hope, and were exposed to some of the extreme poverty and the effects of HIV and AIDS. And at one point, I turned to one of the local leaders and, and asked him what he needed most expecting him to say money. And instead, we, he said, we need strategic partners who would help us stand on our own two feet. And that answer, that response really inspired us. So we came back to Chicago and ended up starting Spark Ventures with the mission to partner with grassroots organizations around the world, um, help lift those communities out of poverty um, by deploying philanthropic capital to both build capacity and create um, sustainable solutions in, in communities like the one in Zambia that we visited. And was it clear to you kind of right away that you, you wanted to do a nonprofit or did you kind of look at other options like partnering with other nonprofits or maybe just saying like, how do we make a boatload of money, even though that's not what they're asking for? Like, did you look at other options or just right away, just nonprofit? You know, we did, we did step back and say, are there other organizations uh, that could help this specific uh, grassroots, you know, partner that we found over in Zambia? And, and the reality is we couldn't, you know, we couldn't really find any organizations at the time that were willing to take on these grassroots organizations. You have a lot of multinational mm-hmm. NGOs that have, you know, a presence in a lot of different countries. But what we found were local leaders that stepped up in their own community. But a lot of times those local leaders that start something at the grassroots level, they don't have access to the both the sort of the strategic guidance or the the, the capital that they need to do the important social work. So um, after sort of some research and, and really looking at the space, we decided it made sense for us to start 
um, start Spark with the goal of not just partnering with that one organization in Zambia, but to uh, to spread to others. And that's some of what we've done over the last 10 years. You, you pursue uh, creating your own nonprofit. What what was that like? Um, how long did it take or what was frustrating or um, was it easy to do? Was it hard to do? Uh, <laughs> uh, I It was definitely a challenge. Um, uh, I think anytime you're starting uh, something from scratch, it's, uh, you know, you face a lot of obstacles and, and that's probably why you know, a lot of people don't do it and why a lot of organizations don't survive. And I have respect for anybody that, that gets out there and tries because um, it, it is really challenging. I think, you know, some in the early days, we just, we didn't know what we were doing. Everything from filing paperwork to become a 501c3 in the, in the U.S. Um, to essentially figuring out at what point are we ready to hire a staff member. And, you know, fortunately, uh, if I remember right, you were you sort of became an early advisor and in, in even helping us uh, shape some of the thinking around around Spark. And, and then at the right time, uh, we brought you on full time. And I'm very glad we did. Yeah, I, um, I was going to grad school and we needed to practice base. And so we needed to have either a professional work experience, be working for a nonprofit or be volunteering with a nonprofit. And uh, long story short, I accidentally went to grad school, and so I had no work experience. And so I'd entered with Opportunity International um, and their Chicago location for the first part of my master's degree. And then second part, uh, obviously, we knew each other for a little bit from North Park and undergrad. And um, Spark was really cool, international development. That's what I was passionate about. And so he took me on as an intern. And yeah, I remember writing strategic plans and fundraising things and things that didn't exist right, uh, exactly. at the time. And then I, I think I even made the recommendation, like, you need to hire a fundraiser. <laughs> and right. lo and behold, uh, it was me. I remember we met in the second floor of Brandel Library in one of those um, oh, that's back great. offices. Uh-huh. And, and we talked about me and, I, and you said, we can pay you for nine months. Um, <laughs> but after that, there's no guarantees. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, well, jumping into a new startup now, I wish I wish we had nine months runway. That's uh, that, that, that's a that's a luck that's a luxury. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so you you got set up, um, and then you you ran for a little bit with just kind of like board members and co-founders, uh, and then kind of hired me. Uh, what were some of the the um, you know things that you found like oh wow that was we got lucky or, or this was a great decision for sure. I would do that again if I had to, uh, or maybe some things that I would never do that again. Thinking of those first, maybe, you know, one, two kind of three years that are really critical. Sure. Sure. The, I, I would say one of the, one of the pieces that um, some advice that, that came from maybe you or someone else, but as I, as I did some um, listening and reading and, and learning about fundraising, someone told me early on that most most nonprofits, uh, they get the majority of their funding from sort of one source, either government, corporate, foundation, or individuals. And, and to not be afraid to lean into whatever that sort of strength is for your organization. And for us, it was individuals. You know, when we came back from Africa and decided to do this, we had a big event at a local bar here in Chicago and told all our friends, there were like 400 people there, and they really became our base of support. And um, even to this day, that continues to be the case is that that Spark Ventures is funded largely through through individuals. Um, over time, it certainly has has gone from sort of 
you know, smaller donations to cultivating high net worth individuals and, and some family foundations, but still sort of the individual is, is the core, um, you know, uh, a donor that, uh, or funding that we get as an organization. That was really helpful advice. I, I would like to take credit for it. I don't know if it was me, but since then, <laughs> I've definitely given that advice uh, to smaller nonprofits because, especially in the States, uh, about 85% comes from individual in terms of total giving. But then if you add in bequests and private foundations, it's closer to like 90, 92%. Sure. And then even a lot of gifts that come from like corporate or um, public foundations are still relationship-based. And it's like, who do you know? <laughs> Which individual do you know that's on the board or connected? So uh, it just seemed to me, both from the experience of Spark, but then also, you know, numbers-wise and just kind of moving about the space, that I think it makes a lot of sense to focus on on individuals because it will help you lead to major gifts and corporate grants and all this other stuff uh, as well. Um, so yeah, that... I don't know if I, if I helped form that or if, you, if this experience helped form that in me, but I do think that's good advice for young and, and small nonprofits. Definitely, definitely. Um, I want to ask you about one one thing that I would say, and I've, I've used this as an example with other people as well, is the very first, not the launch event at uh, Joe's, but uh, Four Miles to Hope, um, the kind of first Keystone mm-hmm. gala-ish, it wasn't a gala at all, but like first kind of mega event. Um, that we put on just kind of like what your recollection was or, or your view of it. And then uh, I'll share yeah. maybe, maybe my view and, um, and how, how I, it's formed a lot of what I believe around events. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, even to this day, I, I personally have been very shaped by unique experiences, whether they're travel experiences or, or events or um, even just, you know, really special memorable dinners that you might have with friends. There's something about an experience um, that can mm. uh, really move and 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 in some ways change your life or change your perspective. And so, um, what we did at Four Miles to Hope was we told the story of of a boy in Zambia, an actual boy, um, uh, and he used to walk uh, two miles um, to school and two miles uh, two miles home, and he would pass other schools along the way that were government schools or private schools that he couldn't attend. Um, but he could get to Hope Community School that where he was able to um, go tuition free and and get a uniform and the textbooks that he needed. And we recreated his journey in this warehouse in the west side of Chicago um, and what he passed on the way to school. It started at his home and we recreated what his, you know, 10 by 10 foot mud hut home looked like and then all the way to the classroom. And um, at the time, the school was using a rented facility for the classroom. Um, but uh, we were helping to raise funds to to build a much larger school, uh, and um, that's what we you know we took people through this experience, and then at the end asked them if they would contribute to the construction in, of a new school for for this boy and hundreds of others. And I have a few memories of that. One of them is is driving all over Chicago in a U-Haul with all kinds of crazy stuff from like dirt and. You know, set pieces and set yeah pieces, bricks <laughs> all kinds of stuff in just two weeks of like heavy hour <laughs> work weeks physical um labor physical oh, labor. yeah physical, and that the warehouse on the west side of chicago for people who don't know it's not you know the i don't know the most uh clean safe yeah uh, it's a rough neighborhood it's, it's rough yeah it's, yeah, it's a little it's a rough, rough neighborhood 
Um, so it was just an unreal experience. And, um, the way that I've, I've used is I, I, I don't know for sure, but it felt very like make or break for spark in the experience. I think that word that you use, and I'm sure will come up again, but that experience that we were able to provide, I think lasted with people for a long time. Um, just like not just what's going on in Zambia, but what this organization would kind of be like and kind of built this brand, so to speak of what spark was in ways that would be impossible with emails and website and letters and you know all the other marketing things um so events often gets a bad bad rap i think because from what i remember we broke even maybe made a little maybe (laughs) Um, (laughs) yeah like we didn't we didn't raise a crap ton of money and then when you throw in all the time and energy and effort you could make the argument that it was not profitable but you know you look back and two years down the line when i kind of moved on uh, i remember thinking that that set us on a different trajectory with not only those donors, but just as an organization that is invaluable. And without it, I don't know what we would have been able to do, you know, otherwise. Absolutely. I, I just did some, some video interviews uh, for our 10 year anniversary with individuals who have been at most, if not all of Sparks events going all the way back to the beginning. And four miles to hope was one of the events that would come up as I talked with people because it was so unique and so memorable, even eight years, nine years later. Another uh, kind of spark point, if you will, of the evolution of spark was um, had a child sponsorship program that was around pretty much since day one. And then right kind of near when I was leaving or maybe shortly after the decision was made to stop the child sponsorship program. Um, Can you maybe just walk the listeners through and even me <laughs> a little bit of kind of why, why that was made and maybe what, what you learned or was it hard or just unpack that a little for us? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. And, and uh, we did do child sponsorships in sort of a, a traditional model where, you know, we developed profiles of the, the kids that were being supported through our partner organization in Zambia. And then we would come back and find a specific donor here who wanted to give $30 a month that helped to provide education, nutrition, healthcare for that child. Um, the donor here knew them by name, you know, so they, there was a sense of a personal connection. What we learned though, was that on the ground in Zambia, it was actually causing quite uh, a lot of uh, frustration because there were children who were quote unquote sponsored and then those that weren't and children who were receiving letters from certain donors and children that weren't. And, and then you would have, you know, a guardian of a, of a child at the same school, bring their child to the principal and say, why doesn't my child have a sponsor? Or they would come and they would say, my child does have a sponsor. Where's the money? (laughs) And so it it was causing a lot of problems on the ground. And so um, what we moved to was a monthly giving model. It's a program that, that we still to this day call stakeholders. And it's just this idea that um, uh, you can give monthly and it's going to provide the same things, um, but there isn't going to be one specific child associated with you. But over the course of the year, we send you the profiles and and the background on any number of children that are being supported by the overall program. And that just seemed like a more responsible and sustainable way to do this, both on our end and um, uh, for our, our partners in Zambia. I remember a bit of the the shift there as well was kind of moving towards a more like impact investing ish um, 
organization, both in language, right? We were raising money for a poultry farm, which would be a sustainable business in Zambia and offset the costs. And that was, we're kind of moving more in that, yeah, sustainability investment space. And then the kind of monthly child sponsorship model didn't seem to also really fit, right? It was kind of exactly a different yeah. funding model and not kind of who Spark was becoming. Um, yeah, I think that's but, absolutely right. We were we were wanting to uh, to help create, develop, um, explore more sustainable models for for development that involve things like uh, like uh, revenue generating activities, uh, small businesses in these countries, and and the the child sponsorship program really is a is a more kind of legacy traditional type of mm -hmm. approach to philanthropy and so you're right it wasn't really fitting with the direction that we were heading and so that was another reason that we really repurposed it without you know having a without changing the impact and the, and the support that was being provided um, but by using different language and messaging it different way in a different way and I think that's that's interesting too kind of like how how organizations go about uh, raising funds actually says a lot about their brands, especially in the kind of digital space, right? You think of Kiva, uh, which, you know, launched on the scene and kind of right at the peak or beginning of crowdfunding and you can choose your person and you get the money back or not. And uh, kind of the shopping crowdfunding experience. And it was really microfinance wasn't really new, but how you could r donate through Kiva was new and kind of set them apart or Charity Water and kind of the peer-to-peer, -peer, not the peer-to-peer -peer was new, but the way that they did it was pretty new sure. or at scale. And so kind of how or these organizations raised money helped them grow to raise more money and distinguish their brands, which is kind of interesting to think about, like how you raise money actually is a big part of, of your brand. And I think that's what kind of we were doing at Spark, uh, right. processing a bit, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, did, did you lose uh, many donors in that process? We did. We did lose some. I, I think it was probably probably over the course of of a year. The year after we made that transition, we probably lost twenty five to thirty percent of our monthly support. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it largely came, or it was due to those individuals who really wanted to feel that personal connection with one specific child. And the, the great thing is there's other organizations that were still doing that. And we actually even pointed them in that direction and said, if that's what you're looking for, there are some other organizations that do this and, and have, you know, a model that, that is sustainable and seems to be working. Uh, so we pointed them in that direction. Oh, cool. That's great. Um, so that's kind of the, the early years. Um, I know one of the things that I spent a lot of time on as well was kind of working with the board and trying to get a major gifts type program off the ground. Um, I, maybe let's talk a little bit about the board, especially as it kind of evolved and into the the mid years. Um, uh, talk a bit, talk a bit about your your work with the board because I know that was at one point that was like all you were doing. <laughs> it seemed like. Yeah, I, I would say yeah, I would say a lot of the um, a lot of my time over the last ten years has been spent in board development and <clears throat> figuring out what you know, what the right role is and, and, and finding the right people and bringing them on in different uh, positions. And it, probably two or three years in, we made the decision to move from sort of friends and family on the board to a, a, a real board, I, I, I would say. And not that the early, you know, the super early people weren't real board members, but, um, uh, you know, they were added in large part because we knew them and they were willing. Right. Uh, and, and, and then when we hit, you know, year three or so, 
um, we were beginning to be recognized as a legitimate international nonprofit here in Chicago. And we started to attract people as, as donors or to our events that came from various industries and backgrounds and that were starting to write meaningful checks. And we felt like that was the sort of the opportunity to add some of those people to our board. And um, I would say it's one of the things that I've enjoyed the most. Um, it certainly at times has come with challenges, but I think all in all over the spark would not have gotten to where it, where it is now at, at its 10 year milestone, were it not for the strategic, generous, amazingly talented people that, that were added to the board and some of whom served for, you know, the full sort of term that we had three terms uh, and then a ter kind of a term limit after six, uh, six to seven years, essentially you need to roll off. And some of them served that entire time um, and really kind of grew up with the organization and helped shaped it in incredible, incredible ways. Um, yeah. So uh, I, I think it's a maybe common misunderstanding from a lot of people that aren't, aren't familiar with, with nonprofits maybe is how um, powerful and impactful the board can be and is. Um, I think it comes as a surprise to a lot of maybe new executive directors um, who have a poor relationship with the chair or trying to get things done. And like, it, it's a big deal. So what are some of the things that you learned that was either like, um, this is this is key in that you would do again, kind of same question, or this is brutal and don't do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we could spend a whole uh, a whole session talking just <laughs> no, about sure this. Could, yeah. so if you want to invite me back, we could dig into some of the, the, the details. But um, I, I mean, some of it's kind of common sense. It's things like um, creating a, a job description and, and laying out expectations. And as people go through the process of considering joining the board or, or we're pursuing a certain person to make sure those things are out on the table. So there's no surprises. Um, but I mean, we, we learned that in the, early on. And so I don't, I don't think we had too many challenges uh, around that. I would say something that I didn't know early on that I learned after a couple years is that the relationship between um, myself as the, the CEO and then the, and then the board chair, how, how that could kind of make or break um, uh, the, I don't want to say the whole organization, but certainly um, the success and, and, and kind of the synergy between what the staff was doing and the board was doing. And so now, um, even to this day, I have continued to, to meet with our board chair um, at least monthly. Um, and oftentimes, you know, I'm on the phone with them almost weekly. And mm -hmm. Um, sometimes it's short and it's just check-ins and other times it's hashing through really challenging situations mm. and getting, um, getting that person's uh, sort of input and advice and making sure that, that they're aware of what's happening. And we've been very fortunate to have uh, not just board chairs, but many board members who are willing to get into the, in, into the nitty gritty on some level without saying that, you know, without stepping on your toes and without saying, well, we're the ones that should be making this decision. It's much more like they're strategic advisors and they're in the trenches with you, understanding that you're the one that has to make the, the difficult call. And what about some of the, the other like advisory boards or like young professional boards? Like how did you use that similar concept of board or, you know, engaged, more engaged volunteer 
uh, in other ways um, along with the, the regular board? Yeah, early on, we um, we started to identify people that had expertise or background in certain areas that were that would were that could be beneficial to spark and that were interested in in lending their time and, and talent to the organization but maybe either not available to join the board or maybe the fundraising part of what the board was responsible for sort of scared them away or they just weren't in a place to to be able to do that um, so what we ended up doing was creating um, uh, sort of an advisory role where uh, people with a background in marketing or social media or um, accounting and finance even could step in and become an advisor to either myself or one of our other staff members in a certain area. And it, it often meant, you know, spending anywhere from two to, to eight hours a month. Um, it, and again, it could just be on a, on a more of a project basis. Um, some of those advisors, uh, similar to the board members, have stayed with the organization in some capacity for you know nearly eight years, and I saw some of them at the ten-year anniversary event. Um, so uh, it it really it, it was very relationship-based, and and um, they contributed based on their particular expertise or experience, um, and brought that to the table in a way that was helpful or meaningful, either for a season or sometimes over the course of multiple years. Maybe last kind of question on the board, and you're right, this could be you know, multiple, multiple episodes and discussions, but um, I know one of the common things is, you know, how much fundraising should a board do, or should all board members fundraise, or how, what was your kind of approach, and did it change over time um, at all with fundraising in the board? When we moved to sort of the, the official uh, kind of grown-up board right around year three, we started to set some giving expectations for board members. And over the course of the last seven or so years, um, that has increased, not, uh, not, you know, not in a huge way, but it definitely has grown. So the bar has sort of been raised in terms of what's expected of board members. But I would also say that um, while that is kind of applied across the board, um, we have also made exceptions where where there are certain people that will join because of some uh, because they're bringing something else that is needed on the board, even if they can't write a bigger check. And um, you know, I think that's something that every organization kind of has to feel out what's the right thing for them because uh, in some cases that can cause um, some dissension if if you have people around the table and not everyone is financially contributing at the same level. Um, right. uh, but there are there have been times, you know, where we've had board members for um, uh, who are not, you know, necessarily moving the needle financially, but that are critical to our success. For example, um, we had a couple of board members that were on our team primarily because of their their um, business acumen and, and experience um, helping to launch businesses in Latin America. And we had them on the team, you know, for a certain number of years while we were uh, identifying and investing in a mixed crop and uh, honey farm in Nicaragua. And they, we brought them onto the board knowing that, you know, for the next couple of years, we need them at that level of leadership discussion. And yet they said right up front, you know, fundraising is not going to be sort of part of what I can contribute to this organization at this time. And we said, that's okay. Yeah, I think the the thing that you did a great job at 
was the expectation setting and I'm not a board expert, but I know that's the one like little tip I tell most people is like make a job description, even if it's just like a one page with some bullets. Exactly. I feel like the expectation alignment, if those get misaligned, it leads to all kinds of negatives for everyone, right? That's um, for sure. That's for sure. Okay. So, you know, you kind of get through the early years, you got monthly giving, uh, focus on individuals, a strong board with some advisors, some keystone events, like, you know, it's starting to feel like Spark's kind of established. Uh, did you ever feel like stable and established or have you ever gotten over like the startup phase? Uh, I would say there are aspects of, of Spark that do feel fairly established. We, we did really um, earn sort of a reputation as, as doing events really well. Um, and that they have always had kind of a elements of creativity in, in them, not all as sort of extreme as that four miles to hope event that we talked about in the warehouse, um, but a unique vibe and energy and, and, and programs um, that really felt more like an experience and not just a, um, your sort of traditional nonprofit gala. And so that is something that I would say has has felt sort of established with Spark for a while is our events culture and our event rhythm, where we have one in the spring and one in the fall, and they're different events and they cater to different audiences. Uh, and so, and and then I would say also uh, we have developed sort of a rhythm around major donors and and their giving and what that looks like. Uh, we don't have a huge major donor program, but enough of one that again there's. An established rhythm that and a pattern that that we have with them in terms of quarterly communication and annual you know sit down meeting or or lunch or or meal of some sort or visit um, and then sort of the timing of of when they are asked to to contribute again and and what that looks like so those things I would say have gotten established and and feel good uh, uh, in terms of um, not having to reinvent something every year. I, I will say though that it's Spark has remained sort of a scrappy uh, startup environment in terms of, of the team and the workspace and also from the standpoint of reinventing what the model of our partnership model looks like. That has been you know sort of always evolving and continues to evolve even to this day as we sort of set a, a new um, or or a, an updated vision for what that looks like at our 10-year anniversary. So, and I love that. I, I love that sort of reinventing and and, and evolving um, uh, model. I think that's part of what keeps it fresh for the donors um, and keeps you a learning organization. So uh, that's that's great. Uh, there's maybe three things in there. One is just like a a comment, I guess, <laughs> on sure. my side. It's just. Um, you know, again, events and galas, people say, oh, donors hate them. Like donors hate crappy events, right? right. It's like, oh, donors hate mail. Well, they hate crappy mail for sure. Just like they hate crappy email and crappy Facebook posts. Yeah. And so I think a lot of times you go, oh, donor fatigue. And it's like, yeah, who wouldn't get fatigued about like going to crappy events? But if you have cool events or like exactly. great emails or like sweet mail, even, <laughs> I don't know if that exists actually, but like donors like that. So I, again, it's tough because people go, Oh, events are dead. Like, no, no, no. Crappy events are dead for sure. Um, yeah. and then, uh, you talked a bit about the, um, kind of like challenges, uh, around the model. Um, and then also maybe staffing. That's what I want to talk about is, is 
what did you find in terms of, cause I know like I was young, uh, there's a bunch of other young employees. Did you, did you learn anything about how to grow, keep, attract, retain kind of younger folks, if anything? I, th- well, one thing that, uh, definitely, uh, has been attractive, uh, about Spark is, um, the sort of the experience of working in a, in a startup environment, a nonprofit that thinks maybe not like a traditional nonprofit, but one mm-hmm. that is, um, uh, you know, trying to be more on the cutting edge of, 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 of sustainable development. I mean, that's the space that we're in is international development and doing it in more sustainable ways. Um, that was definitely uh, attractive and has been not just for paid employees, but for we've had a steady stream of of interns, volunteer interns that come and do it for course credit or just even sometimes after they graduate from school and they, they don't have uh, a full-time job, they'll come and they'll work with Spark because it's interesting work and yeah. uh, because because there really is uh, a way to dig in and feel like you know, you're handed projects that are meaningful, not just data entry, you you know? Um, And so I, I, yeah, I think that's been, um, that's definitely been something that we've tried to cultivate. And uh, most of our employees, you know, they definitely have been millennials and they've done a great job. And I think, you know, most of the time when they have moved on, it's it's rarely been because it's not a good fit or they aren't passionate about the organization, but it's been because um, there was a new opportunity that just made more sense for them or they physically were moving out of the Chicago area. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's, um, you know, like the the old days of you get your job and you're there for 20 years, obviously those days are kind of gone <laughs> for the most right. part. Um, but that idea of, come in, we'll give you an opportunity to grow and succeed, maybe fail. And then, you know, you can move on to other opportunities um, instead of kind of, we got to keep you here. I think that's, right. that's huge. Um, especially as we look at this next generation of workforce, right. Is um, absolutely. The, the, and the opportunity to travel, you know, I think, right. uh, you know, most, mm. um, most young people today grew up feeling connected on some level to the world just because of technology and, and media. And, so to be part of an organization that is uh, trying to connect communities from and and individuals from the U.S. to people around the world, and 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 not just in a um, have have not relationship, but in a way where we're learning from one another, because that's one of the biggest things that that I realized on that first trip is that we have as much to learn from people on the other side of the world as as they could learn or benefit from us, and um, and that's something that. Uh, a lot of millennials and, and young professionals get are very passionate about. That is it for part one. I hope you enjoyed the kind of recap of the first 10 years of Spark Ventures. And I hope you'll come back and listen to part two. Talk more with Rich about uh, starting a social business involving volunteer travel. Thanks for listening. Thanks again for listening to The Good Journey Pod, a nonprofit supply company production. Be sure to subscribe and get all the past, present, and future podcasts at thegoodjourneypod.com. And you can get more resources and exclusive content by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Nonprofit Supply. Good luck on your good journey.